You're listening to Unhooked. My guest today is Steph Stern. Steph is a leadership coach, an emotional intelligence teacher and facilitator, and a certified internal family systems practitioner. Steph was previously the director of client services at the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, where she led a team bringing mindfulness and emotional intelligence to organizations around the world including at Google, Disney, and Salesforce. As a coach and IFS practitioner, Steph focuses on helping her clients get unstuck from unhealthy habits and behaviors, befriend their inner critic, and gain confidence and comfort in their own skin. In this conversation, we cover topics like why IFS is a compassionate model for addiction recovery, why self-compassion is an essential ingredient in healing, how to work with the inner critic and other parts of ourselves that might feel destructive and harmful, and much, much more. I truly enjoyed this conversation, and I feel that IFS can be an incredibly valuable tool for those of us in recovery. Before we dive into the content, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to consider sharing this podcast with a friend. One of the best ways for this podcast to grow is for new people to hear about it. So if you know someone who might find this topic useful or interesting, please consider sending them one of your favorite episodes. You might just have the power to change someone's life. Without further ado, please join me in this wonderful conversation with Steph Stern. Hi, I'm Jeremy Lipkowitz, and with over 12 years of meditation experience, As a mindfulness trainer and coach for high performers, I've become obsessed with helping people break free from compulsive, unhealthy behaviors and addictions and step into a life of true freedom so that they can finally become their best selves and cultivate deeper and lasting fulfillment. I've created Unhooked, the Breaking Porn Addiction podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to master your mind and optimize your life. This is Unhooked. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Unhooked podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lipkowitz, and I am excited to bring on a new guest today, someone that I have had the pleasure of co-facilitating emotional intelligence seminars with and teaching with. And that is not why I brought her on today. Today, I've actually brought her on to talk about something that I have come across a number of times throughout my career, and this is the topic of IFS, or internal family systems. So I want to just first welcome Steph. Steph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, for someone listening to this podcast episode who has no idea what IFS is, just in a kind of very brief way, what is IFS and how does it help people? Yeah. So I'm so excited to be here because I just love internal family systems and I love talking about it. At its really briefest, most like surface level, I think it's a really powerful lens for understanding ourselves and for understanding other people. And then at its depth or its sort of deepest application, it becomes this really powerful tool for healing and transformation. Um, a brief summary of the core philosophy is that internal family systems conceives of every person, every human being as this complex system 
of protected and wounded inner parts that are also led by this core self with a capital S. I guess what I'm curious about is, I know that for everyone who is in the personal development world, who is a therapist or a coach or a healer or anything like that, there's some aspect of their own story that got them interested in healing. And I'm curious, what was that for you? You know, what, what got you interested in the personal development world? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I often think that definitely like 10 years ago would be so shocked by how my life has gone and the fact that I do this work professionally. So for me, it was um, really a sense starting in my 20s of a kind of discontent. Like I had done all of the things I thought I should be doing. I was a good student. I went to good schools. I had a good job. I had moved from the East Coast out to California and had a great friend group and couldn't really figure out why I was so unhappy. And with the family I did that is very career oriented, I thought, oh, I must just have the wrong job and I should go to grad school and I should learn more. And that didn't work, of course. I did go to grad school, really enjoyed it, graduated with no job and kind of had this existential crisis of like, who am I if I am not connected to work? Who am I really? And it started me on this huge journey of reflection of thinking about what do I actually want my life to be about? What do I actually enjoy and love? And that's when I started therapy a little while later, started meditating and eventually made a career shift from, um, I had been doing environmental work. And as I was thinking about what I really love and enjoy and thinking back and particularly about my two years in grad school, where I had a lot of freedom to choose whatever classes I want, I realized that what I loved most, which is like physically got me most excited and lit up was this mediation training I had taken that wasn't even for credit. And I thought, oh, I think I really want to work with people and their emotions. And that's when I left my environmental career and went to the organization where we know each other from, Search Inside Yourself. And it was a colleague there that introduced me to internal family systems. I wish I could remember what we had been talking about, but she was so excited about this theory and she lent me her intro book. And again, I just felt this physical feeling of excitement, energy. Um, I just loved the model. It made so much sense to me. It felt very intuitive. What was it about IFS that lit that spark? Like, what was it resonating with within you? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think, um, I think there are two things that really strike me about this model. One is it just felt like it answered a lot of questions. It can feel like a glue between other things. And so, and I can talk a little bit more about what the model really includes and it will make more sense. But it's a way of seeing things in much more complexity. And it's a way of seeing things both really intellectually. There's a lot of intellectual frameworks and my analytical parts get to be satisfied. But it also is this really embodied experience and can feel very energetic. And so that connection between the two, it can be very practical. It can be very spiritual. That really spoke to me and made a lot of sense. The other thing I really love about it is at its centerpiece, it is an incredibly compassionate way of understanding things. And that makes everything accessible. Nothing is too scary. Everything can eventually be 
understood and met and held. And that is part of the power that's always really spoken to me. What, what problem in your life did IFS help you solve? I think ultimately the problem that IFS has helped me is helping me solve because I'm not sure I'm there yet is a deep underlying sense of unworthiness. Mm. If I'm really being honest. So that wasn't the presenting issue that got me into it, but that is the deepest core piece. So if I think about, um, I think about everything I was trying to do before I started down this path, it all had an energy of proving of needing to, you know, be smart enough, needing to be helpful, needing to fit in, all of these ways that really took me away from my own experience, from who I truly am, from what I feel, what I want, and really anchored outside of me. And it all came from this, this sort of deeper core wooing of not really believing that I was enough, that I was worthy enough, smart enough, good enough. And so that is really the problem I think that IFS is solving for me is a different way of healing that underlying, that underlying belief structure. And then also going back to update all of the personality around it. Even just getting to that wound, that's huge, but our protective mechanisms are often still in place afterwards. I find it fascinating that IFS, you know, one of the things that it did for you is it helped you find a pathway to the root issue that you needed to address. And I think that's, it's similar for my own life and it's similar for many people who are listening to this podcast who are dealing with porn addiction or digital addictions. There's some presenting issue, it might be stress in grad school or, you know, porn addiction or alcohol addiction. And all of these symptoms are kind of asking us to look deeper and say, okay, what's the deeper issue? What's the root cause of this? And I think for many people, that deep unworthiness is at the root of a lot of it, the deep sense of I'm not good enough as I am and I need to medicate or control or fix this in some way. And I think that's what's interesting to me about IFS. And it's one of the reasons that when I heard about it, earlier on a few years ago, it really resonated with some of the work I was doing around porn addiction, is that it it goes to these core kind of childhood beliefs of, oh, this is that, you know, the 13-year-old boy in you that didn't get love and attention in middle school and was teased and bullied and, and feels unworthy or feels unlovable. Right. So I'm curious, you know, in what way in what way do you interact with IFS as a personal practice? Well, great question in so many ways. Because I, because I do this now professionally for my clients, I want to always make sure that I'm doing it on myself as well. And that means, you know, I have my own therapist. I have an IFS consultant. I have a couple of friends that we trade sessions with. Um, so there are some kind of dedicated times that I set aside and then there also are lots of ways that I just am checking in with myself in a different way. Um, and that can be sometimes quite simple. Um, I also have a daily meditation practice and I usually start with just a little bit of a system check-in, you know, seeing what parts are here, who's here, how am I doing in a way that feels based on my understanding of myself through IFS. And then if I'm feeling, um, 
out of sorts in any way, if I'm having a reaction, I often will then sort of either map out my parts, maybe using it um, with film or journaling or writing, or just as a way of think- thinking, okay, who is here? Why am I reacting this way? And, and really being, trying to be with my parts. This is an ideal scenario. You know, obviously I also have all sorts of other behaviors where I first eat a lot of chocolate, <laughs> you know, numb or avoid before I actually sit down to be with my parts. And actually preparing for this podcast is a great example of this. I'm so excited to be here, Jeremy. I'm really thrilled to have this conversation. I was also really nervous. So there is a tension between the part of me that wanted to prepare, wanted to feel prepared and get things right, and then parts of me that didn't want to shield the nervousness. And so I ended up, of course, procrastinating a lot. And finally, a few days ago, sat down and just like napped out, where are all my parts that are active around this podcast. And, you know, for me, it comes down to this little one inside that just like really doesn't want to sound stupid and doesn't want to be judged or doesn't want to be mediocre. And once I could kind of recognize, oh, right, it's this little one and she's worried about this. It helped me also reconnect with, why do I actually want to do this? What else is here for me? Like, oh, I get to connect with Jeremy and I get to try this on and I get to share something that I love and care about with people. So that's a, a nice little real life example of me avoiding my parts and then ultimately <laughs> Yeah. It's wonderful. You know, you and I teach search inside yourself and there are certain times where getting ready for a big presentation, you know, it can there can be some anxiety about about presenting. And it's what's wonderful about teaching emotional intelligence is you get to use the tools you're about to teach as a way to manage your own emotions. Um, and I imagine with IFS, it's similar. With mindfulness, it's very similar. To give, I guess, people just a little more clarity of what IFS really looks like. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it's, I guess we, we talk about parts, right? And an internal family system. And so I think a lot of the connotation it brings up is, okay, there's a, you know, young kids and there's adults and that th- th- there's personas that are parts of us. Could you just talk a little more about what parts are and how would how do we describe them and what's the value of yeah. describing parts? Yeah, definitely. So, um, and let me also name uh, internal family systems is really a, a theory that came out of psychology. It was developed largely or led by this guy, Dick Schwartz, who is a family therapist. And his big insight was to use the principles of family therapy to describe our personality. So it sees our self or personality as this complex system of multiple parts or subpersonalities. And I think this is such an interesting idea. It's both really intuitive. We use this language all the time, right? A part of me wants to go to the party. A part of me wants to stay home and rest. But it's also pretty radically different as a way of looking at the mind and personality. A lot of systems or theories try and see it as one thing, like the ego, and anything else is pathologized. So IFS is different. It, I think there's a real value in seeing our minds and personalities as a complex system, kind of like a family or an organization. These different parts take on different roles. They're organized. Sometimes they act independently. Sometimes they're working together. Sometimes they're not communicating at all and they're working at odds with each other. So it can be complex, but the complexity is a good thing. We have a complex system because life is a complex task. 
And so the benefit, I think, of seeing this complexity is that instead of being subject to it, we actually can see it and then we can work with it. We can understand it. So from there, one of the core principles of IFS is that every part has a positive intention. And I can't emphasize this enough because it's so critical to actually how we think of our parts and how we apply these theories. It's that compassion and understanding of our part to get to this deeper, oh, what's that? What's that intention? Even if a behavior is totally out of date, unhelpful, misguided, maybe even harmful in the case of some addictions, that they're just knowing there's some underlying need or positive intention, some way that this part is trying to keep us safe. Something often that was helpful or needed when we were a kid that we've outgrown. So I think that's kind of a radically different way of looking at addiction. I know you've um, talked about Gabor Mate on this on this podcast. So it's similar to what he says, that the addiction isn't the problem. The addiction is the attempt to solve the problem. So if we see this part as like, oh, what's that? What are they trying to solve? Um, I'm curious. There's more I want to share about the IFS model. But if we just pause there for a second and kind of and turn it over to you, Jeremy, if you think about some of your parts around either porn addiction or um, I know we've been talking recently about food. Do you think of them as trying to solve a problem for you? Like, how does that land? Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Um, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on is because I've found it so helpful. It, you know, it's a core component of, of the recovery program that I teach and just my own recovery from porn addiction and, and sex addiction. Learning how to make space for my lust and and for my desire and for my sexuality because so much of porn addiction and sex addiction is repressive and and shunning and shaming of sexuality and whenever lust would come up it would be like oh no lust is here i have to fight it and push it down and it wasn't until i really started kind of opening up to it and saying oh okay this is a part of me that just is looking for connection that needs affection, that is looking for intimacy. And and that's something that I actually need as a human. And to recognize, you know, I, I didn't realize I was doing something that's related to IFS, but it was this kind of recognizing that there's a part of me that needs love and attention. And that's where this is coming from. And I think it's really interesting what you were talking about earlier, how we are complex systems. And sometimes our behavior, you know, we have different parts of us that are sometimes in in contradiction with each other in terms of maybe our values or what we want to happen. And sometimes they're not communicating at all. And I think for myself, I know this is true, and I know a lot of, a lot of the listeners will recognize this, that particularly with porn addiction or sex addiction, sometimes it feels like there, it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, there's like a separate part of us that is just taking control and and just... It's like, where did this guy come from? And why is he, why is this monster a part of me? And to recognize it's like, okay, there are different parts of us that need different things. And what I love about IFS is, is it is exploring deeper and saying, okay, what does this part of you need? Right. Yeah. That's right. I'm so glad you mentioned that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because I think that actually gets into another piece about where I think IFS is really powerful in general, and especially with addiction is that we don't see it as just one 
part. So it's not just, say, the part of you that wants to watch porn. With a addiction, we know that there's actually an intense polarization between two parts. So ISS sees addiction definitely as this behavior to try and protect or achieve something good for us, but also the more extreme the behavior, the more extreme tension there is in the system between the part that wants to do that behavior and the part that wants to manage it or doesn't like the behavior. This kind of polarization or tension between multiple parts, we all have that. Whether or not you think of yourself as an addict or having compulsive behaviors, we all always have parts that are at odds with each other. And Jeremy, in the work that you and I do, we know when a clay is coming to us that there already is some kind of polarization. There's the part of them that brought us, that brought them into coaching that wants change. And there's the part of them that doesn't want change, that is doing what it's doing for a good reason. And so the IFS model of addiction and this idea of being able to see this complexity, I think is really important. So to sort of summarize, we we would see it not just as one part doing this you know, bad behavior, but it's actually the system or cycle that happens. And so there's some usually presenting trigger, and that could be, you know, a, a need for connection. That could be um, some kind of threat of pain or emotional overwhelm. Um, and so then a part comes in that does the behavior, that watches the porn, eats the food, drinks, whatever it does, that we think of as a firefighter. It sort of swoops in to be the hero of the system, to move away from pain, shame, emotional overwhelm. Eventually, though, what follows is that Mr. Hyde, so to speak, it's usually pretty harsh a critic or shamer that doesn't like that behavior, that doesn't identify with that. And it can that part can say some really terrible, mean, harsh sayings. And what's actually really tragic about this cycle is that there's another young part of us that hears that critique and takes it in. So in addition to these protective parts in IFS, there are these younger parts that hold those feelings of shame, emotional overwhelm, maybe memories or you know difficult experiences. We call them exiles because the protectors want to exile them from our conscious awareness. And so when this critic or shamer or taskmaster comes in, it's actually this young part that hears the critique and takes it in, right? That's the part that's holding, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. And then we feel those feelings of that exile. And often that actually exacerbates the shame, the cycle. So this critic is adding shame to a system that already has it and actually leading to more of that addictive or compulsive behavior. And so it becomes this really unfortunate cycle. So one of the insights I think here about internal family systems is actually we might not start with the part that is holding the addictive behavior. We would probably start with this inner critic and get some um, relief in the system by de-escalating this tension between the firefighter part and the manager or critic that is trying to control the behavior. Yeah. How do, yeah. It, how does that resonate with your recovery experience. Well, I was, I was smiling because the, it parallels so closely something that we do in, in my program, which is 
you know, the first step isn't to address the porn behavior. The first step is to let go of shame. Yeah. You know, to, to really deal with the part of you that it's interesting. I'm, I'm using the parlance of IFS without realizing like the part of you that is, um, feels ashamed of your sexuality and the part of you that is beating yourself up and saying you're a bad person. It's like you have to fix and, and deal with the shame and you have to make space for your sexuality before you address the behavior. Because that's, exactly. you know, as Gabor Mate says, you know, the addiction isn't the problem. The addiction is attempt to solve the problem. And so, you know, that shame, that self-abusive behavior is one of the first things we work on. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating that it's kind of a, this constellation or like psychodynamics of, so in grad school, I studied, um, uh, gene regulatory networks and systems biology and it was all these different networks of this gene turns on that gene and that gene turns on three other genes and you can study the system dynamics as a whole and it's interesting as you're talking about this i'm just thinking about okay there's a whole system dynamics that's going on of this part acting and then he thinks he's critiquing that part but it's actually the the young child part of us that's hearing the shaming yeah, and that exactly. has effects on on the whole system, right? Exactly, and that's that's where intro family systems. That's the systems piece. It is a systems thinking kind of model, and I think that's what's what's so powerful about it is all of these parts. Even when they're doing something really unhelpful that we don't like, it makes sense when you see it in the map of the whole system, and also when you remember, you know, again, these parts are often formed in childhood, and they may be really out of date. So one of the, the funny kind of magical parts of this model is that as you get to know and understand a part and why it's doing what it's doing, eventually you might ask it like, how old do you think I am? And we often get a number that's like 5, 10, 12. These parts are kind of stuck back in the past and they are doing this out of date behavior because they literally don't know. And so part of the process is actually of getting to update them and getting to help them play a more positive, helpful role in the system. Yeah, I love the, the, like the idea of outdated software. Like we're running on an operating system that's 30 years old and we yeah. haven't taken the time to update. Like, hey, when you're in a social situation, you know, you don't have to behave in the same way and with the same stories as you did when you were in middle school and getting teased and bullied for x y and z and to think okay what's what's a healthier way to to look at this I, i'm curious because ifs i know there there's so much about ifs that is being used to help people in addiction the first place i heard about ifs was in a, uh, a recovery center in thailand where i was working and I'm just curious, what is it about IFS that is so helpful for people in recovery or working through compulsive or addictive behaviors? Yeah, so I think some of that we've touched on, which is it's a really compassionate, non-shaming approach. Um, so other approaches, and there are lots of great approaches, that, so it, it really is about what tactic meets the person where they are in, in their journey. Um, but I can imagine a lot of approaches, what they're actually doing is kind of strengthening a manager, maybe even strengthening the critic to control the behavior. And that can be great in the short term, and particularly if there's some harm reduction needed. 
Um, but in the long term, what I think is um, more powerful about the IFS model is that it actually gets to the underlying drivers of the behavior. So these younger parts that are holding these challenging emotions or these memories, these outdated beliefs, IFS actually has a deep healing process so that we can unburden them from those heavy emotions and, and outdated beliefs. That also brings back some of our kind of wonderful childlike qualities that may have been lost, things like play and joy and awe and spontaneity, um, a sense of aliveness and passion. Um, those can actually be healed and brought back into the system in a healthy way. And so then these protective behaviors, they don't, they're just not necessary anymore. So it, it fosters, I think, a more kind of permanent, deeper sense of transformation and change. How would someone go about turning a part of themselves that is, seems just overly negative, harsh, judgmental, critical, um, seems to be kind of an enemy. How would they go about turning that part of them into an ally? Yeah, such a great question. So the first thing is to just try on the idea that even the most negative voice, right, even the harshest inner critic or bully, if we just try on this idea, oh, they actually want something good for us. And in particular, with inner critics, I think it's really helpful to understand that critics get mean because they actually don't have a lot of power in the system. They're not parts that make us do things um, in terms of behaviors. They're trying to control our behavior through their language. And so the meaner the critic, the more scared they are. The more that they're scared of losing control to these other parts that maybe have extreme behaviors they don't like. So I think that's a really helpful starting place. And if with that kind of intention of, oh, there's some good that this part wants for me, if that leaves you feeling a little more open, a little more curious, then you can start to explore what, what might that intention be? How is this part trying to help us? That may not be enough. So one of the, the powerful pieces to me about internal family systems is this idea of unblending. So our parts can be blended with us. They can kind of take over, be really close in, or we can kind of separate from them and be in relationship with them. And so, you know, if you're thinking about, say, an internal critic that's really mean and harsh and you feel scared of it, that's another part that's here. And we need to actually unblend from that scared part first before we can get to know the critic. Or maybe you are really annoyed. Maybe there's a critic of the critic. And you're so upset that this part is here that it's hard to get to know them. So it, it, another, another way of saying it is with IFS, we always want to be getting to know and relate to our parts from a place of compassion, openness, curiosity, kind of a loving awareness. And if that's not how we feel, that's totally fine. That's just another part that needs some attention first. One of the tactics again, that, that I used for myself and my own recovery from porn and that many of my clients use is um, this tactic of welcoming lust. And actually, what I invite my clients to do is to use the phrase, oh, my old friend lust. And it's this compassionate turning towards this thing, which 
used to be so controlling and so scary and kind of the enemy. It's like, oh, my old friend lust. And in that instant of, of turning towards it and saying hello to it, you distance yourself from it and it stops driving the bus, so to speak. And it seems like there's a lot of parallels between what you just said of this unblending process. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds exactly the same. It's can we be with this part of us? And and as you're just saying, welcoming it in, having it sit down right next to us. So it's not driving the bus, it's not taking over, but we're also not avoiding it. We're not suppressing it. We get to be in relationship with that part and really understand it. And that's where the healing comes from. As you were mentioning, you know, like there's these different parts and sometimes there's the inner critic and sometimes there's the critic of the inner critic. And and if there's fear around that, then maybe there's the part that's the fear of the inner critic. And it, it can almost feel like there's an infinite number of parts. Okay. And I'm just curious, how do you manage having an extended family that's a thousand million people large? That's, that's such a good question. Um, so Dick Schwartz, the, the founder of this theory, actually talks about it as a fractal system. So we have a lot of parts and our parts can have parts. So it may be that we have an infinite number of parts um, and it's okay. So I, I personally manage it by, in my system, I notice there are some parts that tend to be somewhat consistent. These are maybe my biggest protectors, my most prominent patterns. And then there are other parts that I'll work with once and I'll never really notice or see them again. Um, another way of saying it, I think, Jeremy, is that we're really in the realm of the subconscious and it's complicated. So this is a model to make sense of it. And I, I love the, the framing, um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So it, it's not so much that the part is exactly this fixed thing. It's more that it can be helpful to see it that way and work with it that way. It can be a little overwhelming. I will say sometimes when we start to be more and more aware of our parts, and we see this in meditation too, is you just start to be more aware of what's actually happening in our internal system. The first response can be a sense of overwhelm. We just didn't know there was so much here and happening. So that can be a natural kind of early point in the process. And for people who are experiencing that, I'd say just stick with it and it's okay. And, and that overwhelm, that's also a part. That's a part that probably thinks that they have to take care of and manage the whole system. I'm also noticing that there's a lot of overlap. And I think this is one of the reasons why I feel kind of resonant with IFS is it feels that there's a lot of overlap between IFS and just what we might call mindfulness. We might call it Vipassana meditation or insight meditation or labeling techniques, which is a lot of awareness of the different emotions that are coming up in any given moment. So as we're meditating, we might notice, oh, okay, fear is here. And then in the next moment, it might be, oh, and there's some pride for noticing fear. And then in the next moment, it's like, oh, there's the judgment of, of feeling pride. And, and so it's kind of in every moment, there's an opportunity to notice some mental quality that might be skillful or unskillful. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, is this kind of just a personification of different mental qualities or is there something distinct about about it being more of a parts as opposed to different mental qualities and 
and I guess needs that we might be having? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I think you're right that this is where IFS and many forms of meditation really weave together beautifully. So that idea of we actually can be aware of what's happening in our system. And, and actually, we also get to identify more and more with that sense of loving awareness. In IFS, we would call it, again, self with a capital S. But we get to identify more and more with that inherent true nature and seeing our part as part of us. That they exist, they come and go um, in, our, in our awareness, in our system. But we're actually more than the sum of our parts there. Where I think things diverge a little bit in a, in a really helpful, mutually supportive way is that the IFS process doesn't just stop at awareness or labeling. It's a way of actually getting to know the part. So Dick Schwartz talks about parts not just as this temporary mental factor, but actually as these unique sacred beings. That may be a little overstatement, to be honest, but I think it's helpful to think of a part that way. A part is not just a a flat, um, you know, behavior or one note emotion. There are actually these sub-personalities that they want usually complex, intricate things. And as we get to know them and understand their deeper desires, their skills, what they want for us, they might transform and play a really productive role in our system. And so IFS, instead of just Again, stopping at awareness, it actually is this relationship building. And we get to some healing steps, unburdening, understanding their story, and letting them take on an important role. So one way of framing the goal of IFS that I really like is this metaphor of an orchestra. So if you think about your personality as this orchestra, the parts are all playing their separate instruments. And, you know, as a starting point, they're probably all just jamming in a <laughs> really discordant and not harmonious. The idea is to have self be the conductor of the orchestra and to have more harmony in the system. But, but ourselves, we don't actually play an instrument. The goal is for each part to play their unique note and bring their skills and talents into our lives and into our system and our our way of experiencing the world. Have you seen the more recent Jumanji films? I haven't. Do you know you know the original Jumanji? No. Nope. Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> all right. We're talking to a Luddite here. I know. Sorry. All right. So Jumanji was a, a movie. I don't know. Back in when I was a, a teenager, um, with Robin Williams, and he plays this board game, and it like opens up this portal to this jungle, and these kids get sucked into the board game. Well, anyways, there's a uh, this, this metaphor is going to fall flat on you because you don't know the movie. You have to go. Just promise me you'll go watch Jumanji after this. Okay, we'll it's do. With, it's with The Rock and Kevin Hart and it's and Jack Black. It's very hilarious. What's interesting is these these young kids get sucked into this video game um, in this jungle world, and they become these different avatars of the the people playing it. And each one is like this superhero that has different strengths and superpowers, but they also each have their own unique weaknesses. And they need to figure out how to work together with their strengths and weaknesses to solve the puzzle, whatever. And it, it strikes me that that could be another beautiful 
metaphor for IFS. You know, it's that all these different parts, they're all unique characters and they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. And it's learning how to get them to work together and collaborate and and to amplify their strengths and to be cautious and compassionate about their weaknesses. Um, that makes it a, a skillful team. Yes, I think that's such a great metaphor, even without having seen the movie. <laughs> I think you've totally nailed it. I'll just add in one extra layer as well, which is that our default state is much more fear-based and survival-based. And so these parts, without this connection, without working with them, uh, whether it's through IFS or lots of different modes of personal development work, they're very scared. And so they're acting out of fear. Again, they're really often outdated. They think we're younger than we are. They might be stuck in the past. And so part of getting them to play these useful roles is to Rec help help them recognize that they actually are safe. They're not alone. That being part of the team is connecting, is um, you know supported. Like that, they get to act more out of, I would say, out of love, but out of a sense of of connection and a wholeness. So that's part of the the transformation as well. I have a feeling that when, when you watch Jumanji, you're going to totally geek out and you're going to see all these parallels between it and IFS. Um, we can do an episode too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, once you've seen it. Um, I, You know, another one of the kind of just metaphors or analogies that I use with my clients is this topic of like the inner committee. And there are these different parts that you have. And as you're talking about this, I think one of the things that I'm you're talking about the difference between IFS and, and mindfulness or meditation and that embodying, you know, the personification, the, the beings that we can get in contact with in some way allows them to be greater allies for us. You know, they're not just a flat emotion, just, oh, there's fear, there's lust, there's courage. But it's like, no, this is a, a being that can, you know, first of all, that needs love and needs protection and and wants to be listened to, but also that can be a great ally and can support us. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really love about the IFS model is that part actually gets to decide how they want to be that ally. So a, a great example of this, uh, I'm thinking of my perfectionist part. I have a very strong inner perfectionist um, and have for a long time. As I've gotten to know her and gain more trust she has learned that like we're not going to fall apart if we're not perfect it will be okay we can get through it her role has shifted but only a little because she's still really interested in me being excellent and that feels really to be honest that feels very age appropriate for me i'm in my early 40s and to me 40s are about deepening into what i know a sense of mastery and so she helps me learn and improve so instead of being harsh like the harsh voice of perfectionism in my system used to be much more like you're not good enough that sucked you know you should never do that again now like she's kind of here taking notes oh if i did another interview like this what would I, how would i improve how would i do it differently so she sort of shifted from a sense of tight perfectionism to a growth oriented sense of excellence mm -hmm. that's the shift for her in my system I have a, a friend 
where I was working with her perfectionist part, and she is um, closer to retirement, so it may be age-related or it may not be. Um, her perfectionist totally wanted to retire. She was like, yeah, you've done really well. We're good. I want to go sit on the beach. And so sometimes these parts in their transformation are freed up to just shift a little and just play a more productive role. And sometimes they do a total 180 and they are totally exhausted of doing what they've been doing and they want to do something totally different. And I, I love that sense of choice for those parts of us that they get to be freed up and they get to decide. I'm kind of fascinated to to just imagine what my lust part would have decided to do when I was early on in my recovery. Um, you know, I, I know now that I can see the lust side of me. It's something that I actually really do value and appreciate. And and I know that it's the part of me that wants deeper connection and wants intimacy and wants to be a source of intimacy for others. And it's a beautiful aspect of myself. Um, and it's I an ever-evolving aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I could also imagine, Jeremy, that that part might want that sense of passion and aliveness, and it may not need to be acted on. That part may help you just hold that positive feeling. So, yeah, they're, they're, I, I'm curious too, and it's not too late to actually get to know that part as a part and see how it wants to be in your system. Yeah. How it wants to express itself and how it wants to show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. If someone were listening to this, let's say someone is struggling with porn addiction and they're listening to this and they're saying, wow, okay, this sounds like a really interesting system or philosophy, but I don't have the finances to go work with, with an IFS coach. How could they start to implement some of these learnings or these tools in their own life? Yeah, great question. So the first thing I would suggest is just starting with this idea that whatever part of them is, say, watching porn, that that part wants something good for them. And just to see, can that alone bring a little bit more compassion and understanding to that, that behavior? And with that, can there also be a little bit more awareness? What triggers that desire? Right. As you're saying, like maybe it is a desire for connection. And maybe that need can be met in a different way. Maybe it's a behavior that's actually to avoid a difficult emotion. Maybe there's, you know, as somebody sort of tracks their patterns, they become aware, oh, I seek out porn when I feel lonely or when I feel not good enough. And just bringing some more awareness into these different parts of us that might be here, I think is really helpful. The next piece, again, would be to think about what are all of the parts? In particular, is there a power struggle between two parts? So in the case of porn addiction, maybe there's the part that pursues porn and then there's the part that, you know, the critic or the, the bully or the taskmaster that comes later and really regrets it and shames the person. And I would actually start by getting to know that one, starting to get to know the, the critic or shamer. And again, starting with this idea, that part has good intentions. It's trying to control this other behavior. It wants something good for you. Um, and to work with it, I can imagine a couple of different things. I'll just name two. So to give listeners a place to start and, and not overwhelm you with too many choices. 
One thing I love doing is just letting parts have a voice. So if you imagine maybe writing a letter to yourself from that part's perspective, and that could even literally start, like I might say, you know, dear Steph, I'm the part of you that watches porn and here's what I'm trying to do for you. And just letting that part have some expression. Um, another way in is that there's some wonderful recorded guided meditations and practices um, for IFS available. Dick Schwartz, the founder of the theory himself, has some that are freely available on Insight Timer that I'm always referencing and, and recommending to clients. So those are some great just starting points. I love the journaling prompt of writing a letter to yourself from the perspective of a part and starting it with, here's what I'm trying to do for you, because it forces you to come up with an answer. Because I was going to ask you, what do you do when you can't find a, a good intention behind one of the parts? Like if there's a part that you just, you have no, there's no way to even think about how it could be trying to protect you. And I think by doing that journaling prompt, it, it almost forces you to come up with something. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that does. Um, I think that does force the issue. If it doesn't, my hypothesis would be that there's another part in the way that can't see or isn't willing to see the good intention. So then I would start, and maybe it's starting with that part. Okay, there's a part of me here that is trying to protect me from parts get really scared of another part taking over. So if you can't see any good intention in, say, the part of you that watches porn, I'm going to assume that there's another part here that doesn't want to give the, the porn watching part any attention lest it gain more power. And so th then you can sort of switch your target of focus to this one that really doesn't like the other one Yeah, and, and write a letter there. I was just thinking, you know, like there, there's a part of me and this part is very strong and sometimes controls my behavior that wants to sit on couch and watch Netflix for many hours in a row and eat junk food. And, and I was thinking, okay, wh what would this part of me be trying to, you know, to offer me? And I could probably come up with something and be a little sneaky about it. But well, what's interesting is this other tactic of maybe there's another part that doesn't want you to see that. And I can imagine the perfectionist side of me doesn't want to let that person have a reason because they don't want you to be compassionate to yourself or give yourself time to rest or relax and they just want to say that part of you is lazy and you know whatever it is so yeah it's interesting to kind of look at is there a part of you that's blocking the reason yeah. yes i'm so glad you said it that way jeremy because i think often there are parts of us that don't want us to be compassionate with ourselves and they're scared they're scared that with too much compassion we will become complacent we will let these other behaviors take over. And um, I really relate to this because I, um, even after working in emotional intelligence for quite some time, I actually still hated the idea of self-compassion. So just for any listeners out there that might be like, oh, self-compassion, <laughs> I hear you. And that's probably a part that is a little scared of letting in that compassion. And that's a great place to start. It's, it's really understandable. That's probably some form of perfectionist or inner critic that is used to motivating us in another way. And they're worried if they don't do their job, um, 
that we're going to you know, end up a pile of, of mush or that we will be judged by someone else that will fall apart in some way. Yeah. And there's all kinds of different forces acting on us in terms of, you know, I was just thinking in terms of the part that might not want us to be self-compassionate, you know, for a lot of men, there's a part that thinks that self-compassion is weak or soft. And there's all these issues around masculinity and the messages we get sent as, as young boys and young men and what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And so paying attention to the parts that are holding us back because of societal expectations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you named it that way because I, I think it's so important to see the cultural context of all of this and why we are the way we are. And sometimes our parts really take on beliefs from society and culture, not just from our childhood and immediate family. Um, and I think particularly with self-compassion, since you mentioned it, I'm going to get on my self-compassion because this is also something I feel so strongly about. And I really, I really love Kristen Neff's work here on self-compassion. She talks about the yin and yang of self-compassion. So the yin quality is that more accepting piece. Oh, it's okay. Right. Parts of us that, um, really can do that warm, compassionate holding versus the young energy of self-compassion is more motivating or more protective. So, um, you know, a great example, if we think about, you know, porn addiction is, yes, there's one piece of compassion that says, it's okay that you have this behavior. There's nothing wrong with you. And we have nothing to be ashamed of. That's a really important starting place. But you don't want to leave it there if that behavior is harmful to somebody. So there's another voice of compassion that says, okay, what are we going to do about this? What, what's that deeper need, need that you're trying to meet? How else can we meet it that's not harmful to you? So there's sort of a protective, motivating quality of self-compassion that I think really gets missed and that is really vital to actually leaning into it and embracing it. Yeah, I, I think. The topic around self-compassion and how it can look very different to what we're expecting is important. A lot of people think self-compassion is bubble baths and a tub of ice cream and, you know, kind words. And sometimes self-compassion can be fierce and powerful and motivating and harsh even. Yes. Yes. And, and all of those things, bubble bath, sunshine, all of those things can be really nice. They can also sometimes be some numbing or avoiding behaviors. And I think the voice of self-compassion is one of really turning towards whatever is really here. And it can be, it's, to me, it's really this important self-experience of being with what's hard with a sense of compassion. And that's where I think of, um, with IFS, but also, you know, in the work you do without IFS and lots of models. Compassion is the agent of healing. It's this willingness to be with ourselves and also to be in this kind of dual state. So I might feel really sad. I might feel a lot of shame. But if I can also feel compassion for myself, that eases the difficulty. We get to have this like dual brain state where we are both feeling something hard and feeling the sense of compassion. And that to me is what actually helps us feel, helps us be with these difficult 
emotions and, and also work with difficult memories. Is there ever a time where IFS is counterproductive? A time where you need to say, all right, let's put a hold on the, the parts and I need to not look at it this way. Is, is there a situation where that would come up? Yeah, for sure. I think particularly in short-term situations. So, you know, another way of saying it is I really believe that in the moment, the most skillful thing to do might be to numb or soothe and avoid and come back to it later. So, you know, I don't walk around all day always being with my parts and always talking to them and seeing what they need. Then we, we like couldn't live our lives. Um, so in that sense, I do think, you know, IFS can give us this idea that we need to always be doing the healing work or that there's some end state that we're trying to get to where we've, you know, healed all of our exiles and loaded all of our burdens and then we'll be a perfect person. And I think that's a misunderstanding. So, um, in that sense, I think it can kind of maybe be a miss or not the right tool. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. And actually it, it made me think of, uh, uh, so I, I asked that question, just not really having any ideas behind it, but then your answer kind of brought something else to my mind, which is, I think this person was, was had some IFS in their background, but it's also sometimes not, not helpful to do it unsolicited on other people. <laughs> Oh, you know, <laughs> to say, this is the inner, you know, and I think your inner child is just hurt by what I said. And it's like, do it for yourself. But, you know, if somebody hasn't asked you to do it, you know, in Search Inside Yourself, we call it psychologizing. Right. And it's like, if somebody's coming to you with a problem or wants to have a difficult conversation, to not psychologize away and say, well, this is just the hurt inner child in you that's speaking. And um, there can be times where where you just need to have an, an honest conversation about what's going on. And yeah. Totally. I think that's such a good point. So I, I do find IFS a really helpful lens to see other people and what might be happening, but that's really different than me naming their parts or using it to justify or, you know, explain away and not actually be with their feelings. So, you know, in that case, um, or thinking about using IFS with other people, to me, it's more just a, a way into more empathy and compassion. So if somebody is engaging in a behavior that I really don't like, just see, okay, first, that's not all of them. That's just a part of them that wants something good for them. How is that behavior actually trying to protect them? Doesn't mean I need to accept the behavior or the impact on my life, but it helps me understand what the deeper need might be underneath. Or I could just ask about it, right? Hey, I see that you're really angry at me. Like, what is that all about? And sort of getting, helping to kind of get below the surface. I can imagine that, you know, it's really striking me as you're saying this, that IFS can be a really powerful tool for conflict resolution with another person, because I think there's so much momentum in our society to take one action from someone or one aspect of their character behavior and that becomes the definition of your relationship with them well this person is rude and I, you know but then to say oh this is one part of them and i have that part too you know it, it helps just 
give a more balanced perspective to the person you're talking to and recognizing, okay, this this might not be skillful behavior and I don't need to put up with it and I'm going to have a conversation with them, but it doesn't have to define who they are. They also probably have parts that are compassionate and kind and generous and and all the other things. Yeah, absolutely. And and also to recognize that the more fierce the protector, the more vulnerable the wound is for them. And we don't have to know what that wound is, but just to know, oh, if somebody is really coming at me with you know a lot of defensiveness, a lot of blame, anger, that means that there's some part of them underneath that is quite close to the surface that's feeling really tender and vulnerable. And, you know, again, it doesn't excuse the behavior, but it just gives me a little more of a sense of curiosity and understanding. The next question I want to ask you, it's something that I've been asking quite a few of my guests. And I think the reason I ask it is because I myself have gone through evolutions in my understanding, even on the topic of porn, you know, and, and when I first, I had certain things that I really believed in and my views have changed over time. And so I, I'm fascinated by this question. And so I'm curious, are there things that you once believed to be true about IFS that you no longer believe? Or is there anything that you've changed your mind on? I think when I started doing IFS, particularly on myself and my system, um, it felt really, it felt really wonderful. It also felt really neat and tidy. I was getting to know all of these different parts of me. And as I started in my healing work, um, one image that really made sense in my system is that my parts were all actually living in this house together. And the house sort of represented my sense of self with a capital S, this safe holding for all of my parts. And I loved this phase of healing. It felt really wonderful. Um, it was really imaginative. One thing that has shifted for me is at some point a part came in that was bigger than all of those parts. To her, this house of parts felt like a dollhouse. And as I kind of let that game maybe break away a bit, I can still access that sense of the house and the parts that are in there. But I just hold all of it much more loosely. Like we were mentioning earlier, there might be an infinite number of parts they may not be stable. So I've come to see parts more as, as kind of like the wave particle duality. So we make them into this concrete thing in order to relate to them and work with them, but not because that's ultimately true. And so I, I just really hold a lot of it more loosely. And that also enables me to better meet my clients really where they are and with what makes sense in their system. And if they have parts that want to you know, make it complete and tidy, we work with that. But just knowing that, well, that might be a part that's there that is is controlling the the process a little bit. I love that. I can imagine, you know, early on when it, when it feels so neat and tidy and it's like, oh, there there are there are 14 parts and you will get to know each one of them. And then if you work with a client, it's like, well, you have this part and this part and this part. And it might not be the truth for that client. And so having that more flexible, like, yeah, we all have different parts and they're morphing and evolving and coming into existence and maybe going out of existence. And it's not 
I think that's what I love about it. Also, it's not like this is a metaphysical, um, what's the word where it's like an explanation of how the universe is formed. It's not like a, like scripture of these are the parts you have and you must get to know these parts. It's like, Hey, explore what's going on for you. And this might be a useful tool to get to know what's happening in your mind a little bit better. Yeah, that's right. The other thing I think I've changed my mind about that connects and builds on, on what you're just saying is what healing looks like. Cause I think in that early phase for me, you know, my perfectionist was still perfectly involved. And I thought that there was some end state that I was going to get to where I would have, you know, gotten to all of my exiles and healed all of these core wounds. And then, you know, I would be this perfect enlightened person. Maybe that's still coming. But I think for me, um, I really just shifted my understanding of healing as a sense of um, greater awareness and greater internal compassion, greater willingness to be with what's here. And I, I have a client actually that I, I have in mind who recently like graduated from working together. And he he's not done because he's gotten to everything and he's perfect. He felt done because he felt this substantial shift in his system. He felt like he had, in his words, kind of unsnagged a lot of parts of his psyche that were stuck in the past. And he felt much more of a sense of choice, of deliberate action, and of inner compassion and calm. And that was, that was good for him. And like, of course, his journey will continue, continue to grow and evolve in different ways. But I think that perfectionist lens that I used to have has really loosened. Yeah, it's one of the things I used to do a lot of, a lot more teaching and meditation and, and kind of Buddhist realms. And the topic of enlightenment was a big one that people wanted to talk about a lot. And for me, it was just like, it's not this place that you get to where you're perfectly healed and nothing ever happens again. It's I mean, maybe it is, I, I don't know, but for me, it's not important. It's just like, the whole point is just to keep getting to know yourself and keep healing and evolving and being more skillful with how you show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and with that really acting from a much deeper sense of trust, I think in myself that I can do this, I can get through it, I can be with whatever comes. That's, that is a part of it, I think, as, as well. Is there anything else that you would want to express to the listeners of this show? Um, one thing that is coming up for me is that IFS can be fun. I mean, we've talked about, I think, every topic. We've spent a lot of time talking about mean critics. And one thing that I, I feel like I haven't gotten across is that um, I find IFS quite stunning. Like it is amazing to me the internal intuitive wisdom that comes forth and the like imaginative, creative ways that our system expresses ourselves. And that's super fun. And so it, it, it can really just be a joy. And I mean, obviously this is why I do this work because I find it so fun to hold it for other people, but it can have this really magical, playful quality that I feel like we haven't really gotten to talk about. 
Yeah, I imagine that there's parts of us that are rock stars and the artists and you know the the powerful, expressive, beautiful sides of ourselves, and, and tapping into that, I can imagine, would be a joy. Yes, tapping into that, seeing the ways in which some parts interact with each other. So, like my perfectionist, for example, she loves to come in when it's time to um, unburden. So, there's actually this concept that we haven't talked about that much. In IFS, there are these healing steps where parts parts never go away, but they often let go of old feelings, beliefs, memories, energies that they've been holding. And it's this ritual unburdening process. And like my perfectionist loves to come in with her tweezers and make sure that everything actually gets out of the system that needs to get out. And like, I just love the playfulness that she gets to like be in there and help out. So it's it's fun, like things like like that. These fun imaginative ways of working that make sense in our psyche. Yeah, beautiful. If people are interested in getting in touch with you or working with you, where should they go? Yeah, so um, two places I'll point them for more about me. I have a part that loves to draw my part and tell their stories, and so I do that on Instagram at Parts Atlas. Um, so if anyone's interested in just kind of seeing what some of my parts are up to, please follow me there. My website is stephstern.com, S-T-E-P-H-S-T-E-R-N. And you can find out more about me and get in touch. I have a newsletter that I write very sporadically, so you can sign up for that there. And then if anyone's looking for an IFS practitioner, maybe you want somebody more local. The Internal Family Systems Institute has a wonderful directory of everybody who's been trained in IFS. So that's at ifs-institute.com. Wonderful. Well, Steph, it has been a pleasure having you on this podcast and this conversation. And I'm sure we'll have a part two somewhere down the road. So that's it for today, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Unhooked podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode.